discussion of biotechnology and food production is a polarized one. It is frequently contentious and fraught with emotion. My name is Mike Von Masso from the University of Guelph, and this is Food Focus, the podcast. My guest today is Kevin Folta, a professor at the University of Florida and a strong advocate for the benefits of biotech and food production. We talk about how we got to this adversarial place in the conversation and how we might move forward and change the tone. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please provide a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and others, or you can also find the podcast on our website, foodfocusguelph.ca. This will help others find it. If you have questions or have things that you'd like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to put comments on the website or to send us an email at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca and we will take that into account as we move forward and build new episodes. Now, here's my conversation with Kevin. Well, Kevin, thanks for taking the time today and welcome to Food Focus. This is great, Mike. Thank you very much for having me aboard. So, Kevin, I want to start is one of the things that, that I think you're very active in is you're a big advocate for biotechnology. You're active on Twitter. You have your uh, Talking bio, Biotech podcast that people should check out. Why do you think it's important that we tell the story of biotechnology, whether it's GMOs or gene editing or, or anything? Well, I think that biotechnology is a highly misunderstood and underappreciated tool. And it really is just a tool. And when I think about the number of people who have diabetes or the number of people that will be experiencing therapies from the next rounds of chemotherapies, um, these are biotechnology solutions. And in medicine, we're very comfortable with them. We're also seeing great innovations in agriculture that really will shape the future of food. And I I think it's going to be amazing what we see, uh, particularly for the food insecure. So we need to be able to... uh, understand what biotechnology is and isn't in order to make the best decisions in terms of regulatory acceptance and for consumer acceptance. So talk to me a little bit about the comment on food security before we get to some of the other issues. Why do you think it's important relative to the broader issue and becoming more acute issue of food security? Well, food security, I think about as a spectrum that spans from the developing world where food is scarce to the industrialized world where we get the wrong kind of nutrition, especially in in economically challenged areas. But in the area of the developing world, it's a question of being able to identify and create very fast crops that can better adapt to harsh conditions, maybe soils that are unfit for normal varieties, maybe places that are experiencing changes in, um, in climate. Uh, these are all things that can be addressed through biotechnology, but right now are um, adopted too slow. They're great in the industrialized world for farmers, but some of the biggest breakthroughs that can help nutrition, can help diversify opportunities to grow crops in challenging areas, those um, just aren't hitting home in the developing world like they should. Now, here in, this, in the industrialized world, We know that people are getting the wrong kind of calories, and frequently that's coming from urban food deserts or even rural ones where you don't have access to the best fruits and vegetables year-round. And I think biotechnology can help increase post-harvest quality and maybe lower prices for consumers. So all of that sounds great, and 
I couldn't agree more. Why, why has it become such a contentious issue? Why is there this sort of active resistance to, to the introduction or adoption of some of these technologies? Well, I think the problem started back at its fledgling state of the technology, that when it first started to arise in plants, um, in crop plants, it was at the same time that the internet was really starting to take off. And science didn't step into this conversation, especially the companies that were creating the best new technologies. So the companies that were creating the biotech cotton and corn and soybeans, they weren't participating in the public discussion. And what happened was that when you don't participate in that public discussion and you leave this vacuum void, it's quickly filled by those who are opposed to the technology. And what you saw in the um, late 1990s all the way through the 2000s was a very strong activist present, presence pushing back against technological innovation in the area of biotechnology in tremendous amounts of misinformation. What made matters worse is that when scientists and farmers tried to engage the, the misinformation and, and the consumer that just didn't know what to believe, we made big mistakes. And we challenged people to think about data and evidence and more graphs and figures. And we didn't think about why people were truly afraid of the technology. We used our authority as experts to kind of dominate conversations and actually push consumers away. So that's why there was a problem and why there continues to be a really bad reputation around these technologies that most people agree are very limited with risk and have tremendous benefit. So, so I'm going to, that raised two questions for me. The first is one argument I've heard and I think I've made in the past is that Part of the problem when we initially launched these technologies was that the benefit to the technology was focused at the producer, the person who was making the payment for the technology, and the perceived risk accrued at the consumer level with really a poor understanding of what, if any, benefit was there for the introduction of that. Might it have been different if we'd have, and in your introduction, you talked about you know, better nutrition and all of these benefits that are consumers, might the trajectory have been different if we'd have started with a different type of attribute when we launched? Absolutely. Right now, when it was launched, it was messaging that was really all targeted to alter perception. And it was folks with agendas that maybe don't like corporations or don't like technology in general around food. And and I understand that sentiment. But um, this is an opportunity to step into the conversation and say, here are the good benefits for environment and the food insecure, things that can benefit farmers that are currently living kind of on a razor's edge of economic stability. And so how do we benefit all of these other collateral effects that all of us value? And we didn't have those conversations. Instead, as you mentioned, it was Here's the economic benefit. Well, farmers benefited because they got new traits they found valuable, and companies made money by selling the seeds and associated products. And that relationship really soured the consumer in some ways. Ultimately, people don't know that much about it. And if we would have just maybe um, as scholars and as, uh, as an industry would have led with better messaging, that was really showing the consumer benefit. I think this would be a very different equation today. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and, and say, you know, despite 
quite vocal opposition to some of these products really in the developed world, or at least in North America. I guess I, I won't generalize to the developed world. At least in North America, you know, some of these products are ubiquitous. Corn, soybeans, cotton. And we haven't seen significant consumer resistance. We've seen pockets of consumer resistance, and we've seen a very vocal minority speak out. Now, why that happens is, is a matter for debate. I think to a significant degree, we have a consumer who doesn't understand how food is produced and to a degree doesn't care, perhaps. But we've seen much more, more limitations in, in adoption in the developing world versus the developed world. And that's where we can probably make the most difference relative to, to food security. Why is that? Well, I think the biggest issue, and, and actually, I, I should mention that really the uh, technologies have taken off in the developing world and that more acres are grown in the developing world of GE crops than in the industrialized world. And the uh, relationship there is mostly because uh, places like South America are just growing uh, soy and other GE crops left and right because they have larger herds of animals to feed. And these are a good addition for food for animals. And then they also export tremendous amount to the EU and to China. So even the places that are a little opposed to this stuff are still happy to accept it. But I think the biggest breakthroughs in the developing world will come from some very strong new technologies, not just things like nutrition, like vitamin A and rich products like potatoes, rice, cassava, and um, banana. For all of these are done, created, finished products waiting to be deployed. That's a great example of things that are on the shelf, you know, that, are, that still haven't gone out. But the other big breakthroughs will be things like GE cotton that suppresses the gossipol, the toxic ingredient in cotton that doesn't allow the seeds to be eaten. Many developing world countries grow tons of cotton for fiber. And the seeds can only be used for animal feed um, with certain ruminants. Uh, going forward, there's new technologies that have been recently approved here in the States that ultimately will start to affect the developing world by bringing another high protein source to foods they can grow. So it also, and you know, one other big barrier to keep rattling on here is that the decisions and the pushback in places like the EU and the affluent communities of, of North America they really do affect adoption in the developing world. I've asked, I've spoken with uh, leaders in parliaments around the world in different developing countries, and they'll say, if it's not good enough for the U.S., not good enough for the EU, then why is it good enough for us? And this directly affects the deployment of good technologies that can help people inside those countries. So I have this perception that we're seeing a significant barrier to the adoption of these te technologies but at the same time we're seeing some of them get become widely widely adopted are we compromising the adoption are we slowing the adoption of these technologies or is there just a lot of noise around it it's a case by case basis countries that have seen the value of these crops and have had progressive leadership that has said we are going to accept the science and follow the evidence They've made decisions that have been very favorable towards the technology and adopted it. Others, on the other hand, have said, uh, you know, let me go back and say the great example is Bangladesh and the BT eggplant. Uh, the BT eggplant, or brinjal, as it's known there, allowed farmers to grow this with 
cutting insecticide sprays from 100 sprays a season to two. This is a huge step forward for them in terms of food safety and food security. They adopted it when India refused to do it. Bangladesh, uh, their ag minister said, we want this for our food or for our people and for our country and for our environment. And so we're adopting this technology. India still has not adopted it. So it's about leadership, most of all. And other places are putting in protectionist policies, like the EU. Um, they don't grow a lot of this stuff because it would be difficult for them to compete if they did. So there's a lot of this that's in politics, a lot of this that's in misinformation. But ultimately, technology always wins. We've seen that with everything from refrigerators to microwaves to in vitro fertilization. People are outraged, but that outrage goes away as technologies prove safe and effective. So to a significant degree, if you look at the EU, and, and there is the argument uh, about protectionism and, and those sorts of things, but there's also considerable consumer resistance, I would argue, in EU. I have, I have some relatives in the EU, and there is some consumer resistance in that marketplace. And we see some resistance in North America, where many of these crops are, are widely adopted, or many of these products are widely adopted. Can we convince people of the value of these products? Or is there always going to be resistance? Well, it's a very convenient resistance. I don't think anybody in the EU or in the greenest enclaves of North America are turning down their GMO insulin. They, in some cases, when technology is used to create a product they need, they are more than willing to accept it. Other times when it's a convenient question that's relating to their identity, you know, who they associate with, how they feel about as a European or how they identify as someone in the States who is against technology or against a corporation or maybe uh, someone who is very interested in, you know, all natural food, whatever that means. The, this is what it's about. It's not just evidence that changes someone's mind based upon preferences and upon appealing to intellectual capacity and logic. This is about changing who people are. And food is so important to us from a social side from a personal decision side, that you're, we have to not just change their mind, we got to change everything about their communities and their friends. And so you see why this is such a tough nut to crack. That's why food is so much different than medicine in this particular situation. So <laughs> I, that sounds discouraging, because I think it becomes a, a significantly greater challenge. Will there then be always a market for the non-GMO crops. And for those that are not resistant, we can reap the benefits of the GM crops and, and just say there's going to be two parallel markets in the long run. Well, I don't think so, ultimately. And I think the change and the driver for the change will be that people who um, are opposed to these kinds of technologies will eventually have to accept, because they'll see the writing on the wall, that this is a favorable set of technologies. And ultimately, you know, the folks who, and it, and I see this all the time because I kind of run with those lefty groups. I mean, they're, I'm a university professor. I have lots of friends in the running groups and stuff who worry about health and nutrition and all of these kinds of aspects. And I don't shop at the same stores they do or buy the same products, but that we tend to agree on just about everything from, you know, politics to music to whatever. 
And what it will eventually come back to is we share the same interests and values. And it goes back to what we were speaking about before, about you know food security and people having something to eat that's healthy and safe, that farmers are employed and farmers are making money, that our environment is taken care of. And they will eventually start to put this together that these technologies can have profound impacts on the things that all of us care about. That's how we create the change. It's interesting you raise the point that, you know, being on campus, we have a, a range of views. One of the great ironies that I've always thought is, especially here at the, on the campus of the University of Guelph, and I expect it's similar there, is if you talk, the company doesn't exist anymore as it did, but the company Monsanto, to some people, it is the great Satan, and to others, it is the absolute aspiration of going to work for because they are doing amazing science. And you could run into two different people on campus and get two completely different perspectives on, like you say, large corporation who's, who, who does a lot of work in biotechnology. For some people, that's a bad thing. For other people, it is such a great opportunity to go do real good and meaningful science. That sort of tension has always surprised me. Yeah, it surprises me too because you know the same same people will say you know damn these corporations and they're wanting to control the uh, technology and then they'll call their friend from their iPhone and, and complain about it. Yeah. Um, there's you know it's, they they don't mind technology in many different aspects of their lives. Then again, you know, it, but this is why food is such a funny area, and you know more about this than I do. You know, people make funny decisions based around food, and it that goes back to that idea about how. In affluent nations, we have choices. And if somebody is making noise about that this could be dangerous or could be problematic or could support a company that doesn't have a good environmental policy or maybe has environmental black eyes in their past, like all the Monsanto's, Dow's, all those folks do, you know, this is what sways that opinion. And I, I totally get it and I totally understand it. The problem is it's good to hate a company. Go ahead, hate a company all day. I don't care. But don't disparage a technology that can benefit the things that all of us really care about. Is, is part of our problem the, this sort of skepticism of science? And I mean, I think you raise a really good point around food is different for many people. It's much more emotional. We do in most of the developed world have not all of us, but most of us have the flexibility to spend a bit more if we choose to buy a specific product with specific attributes, whether that's a technological attribute or another attribute. But is there this real skepticism of science and this uncertainty around science that contributes to this? I think so. And I think that that's a phenomenon that is a luxury. You know, you have a luxury to be skeptical of food because we have plenty of it and maybe too much of the wrong kinds of it. Um, folks who I worry about are the people who don't have those luxuries and the people who live on the razor's edge of malnutrition, missing a tiny bit of zinc, a tiny bit of iron, a tiny bit of vitamin A. That's what's separating life or death for millions and millions of people. And to me, I, I can't fathom why we would disparage technologies that could help that. And so I, I think that it is a question from us in the industrialized world who have so much to say, are my decisions and my policies and my personal statements, my retweets in social media, 
are they really stopping technology from getting to somebody who needs it? And I think for a lot of these folks, the answer is yes. Yeah. So that gets to, to my next question. A, per, a perfect segue to my next question is how do we change? Is, is, it, is it just time and, and, and it's going to happen over time and, and there's nothing much we can do? Or are there things that we can to accelerate the trajectory of, of adoption? Well, it's, it's, it has been shown time and time again that the way to get people to adopt change is by helping them understand the reasons why the technology benefits them and why it benefits the things they care about. I know as a scientist that my tendency is always to go into a public discussion, either online, on Facebook or Twitter, or in a public forum, like a panel at a, at a movie discussion, to beat people over the head with more facts and figures, um, error bars in figure five, and, and citations up, up the wazoo, and not step back and say, you know, tell me about your concerns. You know, why do you feel this way? Where did you read that? You know, when we start to listen, it changes the equation. And then once we start to listen to their concerns, addressing them really with empathy that, you know, if I wasn't a scientist, would I feel the way I do? And understanding that from being in their shoes, maybe a parent who has children who they're worried about their nutrition or worried about unusual things that happen that are undescribed thoroughly in medicine, like autism or whatever. I don't want to take any chances. You know, parent doesn't want to take any chances. So we're going to take, we're going to opt for what we perceive to be a safer alternative and steer clear of, of things that are genetically tinkered with. I totally get that. And that's what scientists have to do is we have to first go at this from an empathetic standpoint, then go with, let me tell you about why this technology is important because of the values that I have, mm -hmm. things I care about. And as I mentioned before, farmers, consumers, environment, and the food insecure. Let me tell you about how this technology can help those things and the things we agree on, the things that unite us. And I think that's what scientists have to do more. Okay. So you're, you responded to people like you and I, people who are academics, scientists. Does the messenger matter? Are there other people who should be active in this? Are there ways that we can be better as scientists? I, I agree with you. I think. A big part of uh, the discussion on not only technology, but animal welfare and other things is to spend as much time listening as you do talking. But should other people be active in this discussion? Yeah, absolutely. Scientists and academics have to knock it off. They got to get down off their high horse a little bit and say, you know, let me understand your problem and your, your opposition uh, to technology. And then let's talk about the things that I know about and specialize in. And the remedies that I seek and why, not what or how I do it, but why I do it, why I'm interested, because that, that's what gets people excited. Um, other people who need to be more involved in these, in these discussions, it would be really great if we had some folks in Hollywood or some big name celebrities who really recognize the potential of this technology to do good things for people, um, better nutrition here in the industrialized world. Um, as well as solutions for the developing world. It would seem like they would get that. Somebody, I, I don't know who, but um, that would really help us more than anything else because right now scientists are, are, are trying to do battle online with you know our few handful of followers with Gwyneth Paltrow and Dr. Oz, 
<laughs> yeah. and Oprah yeah. and, you know, the food babe, you know, these people who have these huge megaphones and lesions of followers that will do anything to amplify their messages. So we need some of that. And I don't know if it's that we got to get a scientist like Tim Caulfield, yeah. more famous and more visible. Um, you know, he's a Canadian treasure or, you know, Joe Schwartz over in um, McGill, who just is amazing. How do we get them elevated a little bit more and more visible? And uh, maybe at the same time, pick out some, you know, people who, you know, actors, actresses, radio personalities to finally start to, to pull some weight in helping people with technology. Yeah. So th- again, another excellent segue as, a, as, as we get close to wrapping up here. And it's not limited to the food debate. I just look at we're in an election cycle here, as are, are you guys. And the discussion has become a debate, and it's become very, very contentious. There's high emotion. You've been subject to some horrific personal attacks. How do we change the tone? Yeah, and, and that's a tough question. Um, I think the tone has to change by us being leaders and us changing the tone. We have to take the people who are the most hostile and angry opponents of technology and engage them, but engage them understanding that when we're engaging them, we're not necessarily trying to change them. What we're trying to do is be high road leaders in that conversation because many eyes are on us and people are watching and they're making decisions about who to trust. And if you're, you know, I'll be online and someone will say, this is the technology of Satan and it's going to kill everybody on the world and, you know, in the name of world domination of Monsanto. And instead of saying you're an idiot, you know, uh, you don't know anything about this, I do, which is what I used to do. It really is about saying, I'm sorry you feel that way. When I look at these technologies and the ways they can help benefit the environment and the consumer and the food insecure, I feel very differently. In that conversation, I just won the trust of every single person who's watching that conversation, and especially if it goes on for a few minutes. So in our social media interactions, in our discussions, we need to take the high road, and that's how we change this. That's how we take a contentious topic and make it something productive. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, and I think all of us have had a tendency historically to get very defensive, and when we're punched we punch back. And I think that, that a big part of changing that tone in, in this food technology and other elements of the development or the evolution of food is, as you say, take the high road. No, I, the idea is, is that when someone punches you, hug back. Yeah. And the reason that matters is because people are watching and people are looking, you know, right nowadays, outrage is everywhere, right? Yes. What's a rare commodity in the online world is uh, kindness and forgiveness and, you know, someone who can hug their haters. And, and I'll say that with the mention, the book, Hug Your Haters by Jay Bayer, who talks about how that idea of embracing criticism in a positive and kind way is really a cornerstone now of customer service, especially on the Internet. So I would implore anybody who's interested to having more productive conversations to Really look for hostility, go to the places where it happens, get in the angriest place you can, and be really nice. <laughs> it makes them angry. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's, it's hard to do, but I think becomes a becomes an important part of, as you say, gaining trust in the broader audience. Some of those real haters 
you're not going to change their minds, but you want to engage the people that they're trying to engage in a broader discussion to, to make your case and allow people to make their own decisions. Exactly. Those folks, plus the people that are on the fence that don't know what to feel or don't know what to believe, they're the ones who are watching and they're the most important audience we can capture. So taking that high road and standing up for what's right and appealing to the things they care about, that's the way we change the conversation. Well, that's an excellent place to end. And I always say that and ask one more thing. I'd like to ask you a personal question. Given the, the heat that you've got, do you ever think that you should step back, take a less prominent role? Or is this something that you, that you really see as, as an individual and as an academic, as, as something that you have a responsibility to do? I've had to think about that a lot. Um, back in 2015, I ended up on the front page of the New York Times in an article that was nothing but complete libel from beginning to end. And it affected my life to the point where I was going to quit science. The hate was so hard and made my life so difficult that I was considering just transitioning out of academic science. Um, since then, I've, I've had to think about it a lot. And I've been told by my employer to dial it down. I've been told by others dial it back. But I can't. You know, my um, allegiance goes to the smallholder farmers I met in Uganda who want bacterial wilt resistant bananas that are growing behind a barbed wire fence. And I want to see the day when those bananas come out from behind that fence and are planted in people's yards and in their gardens and in, in their farms. You know, this is people's lives on the line. And we can innovate all day. We can make great innovations. We can make great products. But if they don't get to the people who need them, they're dead in the water. And this is not a problem with innovation. It's a problem with communication. And I have a responsibility to do it. And I need to do it. And I will do it. And I'm not stopping. And so, um, you know, it may cost me a job. It may cost me, you know, who knows. But um, I'm not stopping. I, I appreciate your efforts. And, and I haven't had nearly the amount of hate and pushback that you are. So I, I appreciate your perseverance. Thanks, Kevin. It was a great conversation. I look forward to uh, more conversations in the future. And thanks for taking the time. That was really, really nice. Thank you for having me aboard. As we wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Foodfocus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.